Today's reading from the Word of God comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verses 37 through 44. Please follow along in your own Bibles on the screen behind me or listen as I read the scriptures. Once again, that's the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verses 37 through 44. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. At that time, children are invited to join kids' crew through the door on your right. Hear the word of the Lord. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom... Oh, uh, by this he meant the Spirit, whom those who had believed in him were later to, to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem? the town where David lived. Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, Anchor Bay Church. My name is Bryn. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so glad to be worshiping with you this morning. It's so fun to me in that moment when we're singing the doxology and the the room just like is bustling with children everywhere. So hope you guys have a great time in kids' crew. Um, Well, we like to open our time uh, looking at the scriptures with just a moment of silence so that we can invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us and whatever we brought into the room, whatever you are thinking about in your story this morning, we want to ask God to speak to us in those places. And so I want to give you a moment to just reflect on where you are, what you're thinking about this morning, and ask God to speak to you. And then I'll open us with a word of prayer after a moment. God of living water, we come to you thirsty in so many ways and in so many different places in our lives. We ask this morning that as we come to your word and we learn more about who you are, who you say that you are, and who we are, that you would call to mind those places where we are parched and we need your spirit to give us a fresh word and a fresh movement and fresh life. And we ask this morning that you would move us closer and closer in that direction. And we thank you for your word, which teaches us how. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to open with a story from my friend Sarah Cowan Johnson, who served as a ministry consultant for us in the last year to help us figure out how we can uh, grow and develop our kids and family ministries over the next couple of years. So some of you have gotten a chance to interact with Sarah, and and maybe you've heard this story before. I've shared it before in a sermon. But I, I want to share it again, because I think it's a powerful story that reflects the movement of the Christian life. So one night, as as all the parents are coming back in, welcome back, I'm going to talk about parenting. Um, So one night, Sarah's seven-year-old son, Noah, was reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and he finished the book. And Sarah and her husband, Greg, were so excited that he was going to finish the book, and they were going to tell him about this connection between Aslan and Jesus. And they thought that he was going to love connecting those dots. But instead of delighting him, this news terrified him. Because this creeping question popped into his mind. If, if C.S. Lewis could make up a story about Aslan, 
then could the writers of the Bible have made up the story about Jesus? Noah had completely unraveled by dinner time, and he walked into the room, and he looked at his parents who were fixing dinner, and he said, I don't think I believe in God anymore. And Sarah said that hearing this from her seven-year-old absolutely terrified her, but rather than responding out of that anxiety, Sarah and Greg looked at each other, and they decided that God might be initiating a conversation with Noah. And as parents, their responsibility wasn't to explain God to Noah, and it wasn't to convince Noah about God's existence, but to help Noah learn how to interact with God and respond to God directly himself. It would have been a lot easier to, to brush him off or, or to say, oh, Noah, of course you believe in God, or, or to try to explain that the Bible is true or to enforce bedtime. But instead of doing that, they decided to pause and to pay attention to Noah and his doubts. They invited him to sit down next to them on the couch and, and have an encounter directly with God. Rather than talking with Noah about God or asking Noah to talk to them about God, they decided to hold space for Noah to talk to God directly right there in the living room. They invited to, uh, Noah to tell Jesus what he was feeling and thinking and these questions that he was, he was asking, and then to ask Jesus if Jesus had anything to say back to him. So they sat quietly. They prayed for Noah while he talked to Jesus on his own. And eventually Noah opened his eyes and he said that he felt like Jesus might be asking him a question. And that question was, Noah, are you with me? Noah, are you with me? And it wasn't exactly what Sarah and Greg had expected him to say, but they decided that they would all think and pray about it overnight, and then they would talk about it again in the morning as a family. So after Noah went to bed, Sarah asked the Holy Spirit to guide her. And a scripture passage popped into her mind from the Gospel of John, which is the gospel that we are studying in this season. And it said, remain in me and I will remain in you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. And she wondered if maybe this is what Jesus meant when he said, Noah, are you with me? Was Jesus asking Noah to remain in him? And then she went down this interesting train of thought. She, she realized that Noah was growing physically quickly at the time. And if they didn't size up his clothes every six months, he was going to outgrow them. And so they were constantly sizing up his clothes. But they hadn't sized up his spiritual practices and routines in a long time. They were still doing the same bedtime prayers and routines that they'd been doing with Noah since he was a toddler. And he had outgrown them. He was thirsty for something more. And it dawned on Sarah that leading Noah through his doubts right now didn't mean giving him more information about Jesus and the Bible. It meant offering him some new practices that would help him remain with Jesus as he continued to grow. Now, if you are a, a parent or a guardian, this is an important part of how we disciple our kids. We need to be discipling them to grow into their faith and new practices and new learning and new seasons of growth. And I'm going to share a little bit more about ways that we can do that as parents and guardians toward the end of the sermon, and I'm going to send out some resources this afternoon. But here's the thing. This isn't something that stops when we are kids. Last week, I, I was talking with another friend who doesn't go to our church. And he told me something interesting that he had been processing about his own faith development. He said his kids are old enough that they are now asking some questions that he doesn't know the answers to. He can no longer answer them, and it's made him realize that his own faith development hasn't sized up. He hasn't sized up his own clothes either. 
He had been coasting on theology that he learned in church as a kid or that he learned when he went to Christian college. But 20 years later, he's still trying to fit into those same clothes and faith practices and faith understanding. And that faith understanding no longer nourishes him and he's feeling thirsty for something more. How common is that? And for how many of us is it a little familiar? So many of us, we can remember a time in our lives when our faith just sizzled and popped. We were moved by this vision of Jesus. We were filled with peace and joy and freedom. Our life habits started to get reshaped. We stopped gossiping and and judging as much. We started to learn how to forgive. Our cynicism started to to fade. Our hope started to grow for a while. But over time, the sense of, of progress has started to stall out. And rather than feeling nourished and full, we started to long for something new. You know, over the last few years, so many of us have, have experienced some additional stressors in our lives. And it's not just the obvious one, the pandemic and everything that that did in our families and in our lives and in our work environments and communities. It's also the political upheaval, the racial injustice, the violence, constantly looming recession, climate change. Lots of kids are, are behind developmentally by a few years, and we're trying to figure out as a society how we can help them catch up. And our spiritual practices in the midst of all of this, they might have waned or maybe they've stayed exactly the same as before, but with all of the added stress that we're experiencing or have experienced, they just don't feel like enough to sustain us anymore. We haven't sized up in the face of our new challenges. And so many of us, we're feeling constantly thirsty for the faith that once sustained us, but just isn't in the same way like it used to. But here's the thing. God's plan is not just for us to be saved by grace in the past. It's also for us to live by grace in the present. And that means life in the spirit can be as dynamic and present now for you as it was back then. It might just look and feel a little different. Well, this morning, we are continuing our sermon series in the Gospel of John, which we are calling Signs and Wonders. And we've been taking a look at this middle part of the Gospel of John, the part where where Jesus keeps revealing who he actually is to his followers through signs and miracles and teachings. A few chapters ago, he invited the woman at the well to drink from living water, water that he said would always satisfy her. Then he asked a man at the pool, do you want to be well? Just like he asks us. Last week, Pastor Ethan shared about uh, the moment when Jesus fed 5,000 people with five loaves and a couple of fish. And this week, this week, we meet Jesus right in the middle of a festival among people who had been spiritually parched for a really long time. So if you brought your Bibles, I'd invite you to open up to the Gospel of John chapter 7, verse 37. And just a reminder, if you don't own your own Bible, we have some Bibles in the back we would love to gift you. So you're welcome to take one of those or come talk to me and I will get one for you. We'd love for everyone to have their own Bible. So the Gospel of John chapter 7, verse 37, it says this. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Okay, so this is an incredible, subversive moment, and it almost got Jesus killed. But for lots of us, we've heard this this many times before. So even though this sentence might feel familiar to those of us who have been around the church for a long time, there is a lot going on here under the surface. And I want to take a minute and unpack what the people at the festival would have heard when Jesus stood up and said these words, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. 
rivers of living water. There are rivers all over the story of God. When you think about the Garden of Eden, we don't actually know a lot about the Garden of Eden or what it looked like, but we know that there was a river running through it. God creates all of this life, and then God creates this river right in the middle of it to help sustain it and help it flourish. And the people who wrote the Bible, they love this kind of imagery because lots of them lived in a desert or in a wilderness or parched wilderness. So rivers would have been this kind of ultimate picture of life and flourishing. And when you think about it now, a lot of the major cities all over the world are built along rivers or around rivers because rivers help sustain life. And here's an obvious but interesting thing about rivers. Rivers flow. Rivers move. The Greek philosopher Heraclitus said it like this. He said, no one ever steps in the same river twice, for it's not the same river, and they're not the same person. A pool of water, on the other hand, it just sits there still. It's just a breeding ground for bacteria because there's no movement in the water. But a river is dynamic. It turns corners and glides over barriers. It is fresh, and it is pure, and it is teeming with life. Did anyone see, there were, the Smithsonian released all these really cool pictures of uh, water droplets that have whole schools of fish and microorganisms in them moving within the droplets. Did anyone see this? It's really, really cool. Living water is incredible. Wherever a river is flowing, life is flourishing. And if a river dries up, then life dries up. It's as simple as that. And so the Bible, it gives us this picture of this moving and dynamic life with God. It's like a river that flows in and out and under and over. God never changes, but our life with God does move in season. So that's a picture that we get in the Garden of Eden. But early in the story, humans move away from this picture of flourishing. They become thirsty for their own wisdom, their own security, their own control. And they turn away from the river that once gave, us, gave them life. But God's people, they continued to long for the time when they could get back to that, when they would be connected to the source of life again. So they would, they would write psalms and poetry about rivers and streams, and they would point to the day when God would quench their thirst once and for all, once again. And then the prophets started to write about a day when God would bring a true living water to a parched and dried up people. And then they would throw feasts and festivals, and they would tell and retell that promise that God was going to come and provide them with living water. And so when we open our story today in the Gospel of John, they're at one of these festivals. And this festival was known as the Feast of the Booths, or the Feast of the Tabernacles. Not the Feast of the Booths, kind of sounds like that. Feast of the Booths. The Feast of the Tabernacles was one of the seven major feasts in the Hebrew calendar. A feast happened all the time in agricultural societies like this one, people would set aside particular times of the year and a rhythm to thank their gods and ask for continued provision for them. And so the people of Jesus' day had developed this rhythm and seasons to their year when they would set aside time to thank God for the harvest and ask for continued provision. There were spring feasts and there were fall feasts and they were all organized around these kind of agricultural cycles of harvesting and planting. The spring feasts were the Passover, unleavened bread, then first fruits, then Pentecost. And then the fall feasts were the Feast of the Trumpets, then the Atonement, and then our feast today, the Feast of the Booths, or the Feast of the Tabernacles. And this was the last feast of the year. It was a culmination of all of the feasts. It was the final feast before winter when hopefully rain would come and water the crops and, and things would grow in the springtime and the whole cycle would start all over again. Thousands of pilgrims in Jesus' day would pour into Jerusalem for the eight days of feasting, and they would stay in these kind of makeshift shelters called booths that re represented how God had cared for the people earlier when they were wandering in the desert. There were sacrifices, there was singing and rituals, 
all oriented around asking God to bring rain so they would have food in the spring. I'm going to need a lot of water today because we're talking about water. The religious leaders, they would teach about the significance of water to the story. Rainwater, river water, water and thirst, thirst as a metaphor for spiritual longing for God. All of this teaching was happening around water. And all of it culminated on the last and greatest day of the festival, the eighth day, when the chief priest would take a golden pitcher of water and he'd dip it in the pool and everyone would follow him up in this joyful processional up to the temple and they would chant, Hosanna, Hosanna. You might have heard us talk about that word before. We usually talk about it on Palm Sunday. Hosanna literally means God save us. And when we talk about it on Palm Sunday, the people are chanting for Jesus to save them from their Roman rulers. Hosanna, Hosanna, save us from our enemies. But during this feast, during the Feast of the Tabernacles, this just meant save us from drought and famine. God, sustain us with water. This was the most joyful moment in the life of Israel. It was said that whoever had not seen the Feast of the Tabernacles had never seen true joy. So they would, they would be shouting, Hosanna, and then the priest would shout back to the crowd, with joy you shall draw, draw water from the well of salvation. And then he would pour the water out on the ground. It was this dramatic scene, because back then there was always this kind of threat of drought, so no one would throw good water onto the ground. So it was, it was kind of this acted-out parable that pointed to the promise that God would one day satisfy the thirsty people with more water and more life than they could ever need. So imagine this scene, right? And then think about what happens next. This is crazy. On the last and greatest day of the feast, they would have this parade. They would celebrate God's provision of water in the desert. They would ask God for more water. And Jesus stands up in this chanting, cheering, joyful crowd. And he says, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Whoo, Jesus. He chooses this moment, this moment when the people are focused on their physical need for water and he calls them to notice their spiritual thirst for God. And then he says that he's the one to do something about it. The theatrics alone are amazing. No one ever said Jesus wasn't dramatic. He says, this thing that you are looking for, it's found when I pour out my spirit onto you, my spirit. And no one would have missed what he was saying. God's promised spirit was coming. Now, when you think about it, you read the Bible, the Holy Spirit was already active all over God's story. The Holy Spirit was already present in the Old Testament, but instead of, of acting like a reliable river, the Spirit's activity acted more like rain in a desert. Sometimes the rain would come, and sometimes it was a torrential downpour, and sometimes there was a bit of a drought. It was intense sometimes, but infrequent, but here Jesus is saying that river of life that is constantly flowing, that, that God's spirit is constantly moving and alive, get ready. God's spirit is right here. But notice Jesus isn't inviting them to a pool. He's inviting them to a river that will constantly flow with life in and through them. So it is with us. When we learn to, to live in the dynamic living river of the spirit of God. Some of our early biblical translations have this verse say, out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. The belly, or the gut, is the deepest place inside you. Scientists say that there are neurons in our digestive system that are connected to our well-being and to our feeling of threat deeper than we can put into words. And it's in that very deepest place that Jesus says he will produce fresh life in you. Not surface-level life, not life that once was but has since dried up, 
but living, dynamic, flowing life now. And just a few months later, Jesus would die on the cross so that we could have that life and that spirit. And the moment in the Gospel of John when Jesus dies on the cross, it's it's interesting to me. All the writers record different last words of Jesus that Jesus said as he was dying, and they all had different kind of different points to emphasize. But when you look at John's Gospel, I think he chooses his words very carefully to record. As Jesus is dying on the cross, John records him as saying this, I am thirsty. I am thirsty. How could Jesus, Jesus who is fully God, who isn't just connected to the source of life, but who created all life, how could he be thirsty? Well, in this moment, Jesus entered into the fullness of our humanity from beginning and end. He allowed himself to feel it all the way down in his belly, what we feel. A thirst for the life that God intended us to have all along and what it's like, what it feels like when that dries up. I am thirsty. He knew the wanting in us that isn't ever fully quenched, isn't ever fully satisfied, but he didn't leave us with that thirst. Because three days later, he rose again and he appeared to his disciples and he poured out his spirit onto them, his living, breathing, dynamic spirit out onto them for good so that God's ongoing work could flow through them and could change the world. And some of us have heard these words from Jesus all our lives. We've heard them over and over again. We've seen them stitched on the throw pillows. I am living water. Come to me, all who are thirsty. Rivers of life will flow through you. And we believe them for sure. And still, we've, we've started to treat the Christian life like a pool and not a river. We have coasted on old information, old spiritual practices, rote muscle memory, even as we've grown and changed, even as the world has changed, even in the face of the new stressors and questions that many of us have faced in the last few years. We haven't sized up. And so it's no wonder that we, fi- we are finding ourselves parched and thirsty in this season. And if that's you, maybe the answer isn't to, to take a break or to walk away, or even to double down on the old practices and old things that used to work. Maybe it's just time to jump in the river and move in the Spirit in a fresh way and let the Spirit do a fresh work in us. Because when we do, the Spirit of God promises to truly quench our thirst from now until eternity. I love that when you look at the Bible, the Bible starts with a river, and the Bible ends with a river. The book of Revelation describes it like this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down down the middle of the great great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding fruit in every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. There's this water that flows out from God through us into the healing of the whole world. When we stay close to that source of life, We become increasingly full of the fruit of the Spirit that we talked about in our summer sermon series. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The best indicator that I am living in this river is the growth of the fruit around me. See, the, the promise of new life in this passage, it doesn't stop with us. We don't receive God's river of life and then let it pool in our own bellies. It's meant to flow outward to be part of a whole world of flourishing. This passage in Revelation says this, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. This is good news, but not just for Israel, not just for the insiders, but for everyone. In the last days, this river is meant to flow through us for the healing of everyone and everything everywhere, for the healing of Ukraine and Russia, 
for the healing of, of people who are incarcerated, for the healing of cancer patients and marginalized communities, for the apartment building that's full of loneliness, for the, the families that are hurt by divorce, for the lonely worker at an office party, for the forgotten woman in a homeless shelter. The spirit never just flows in us. It's meant to flow through us so that others might flourish as well. So what do we do with all of this? Well, what if our job as Christ followers isn't to figure out this whole Christian life on our own or rely on our old practices or our old understanding of the faith, but to jump in the river and flow into a new movement? You never step into the same river as before. The river has changed and you have changed. Well, before we move into some practical next steps, let's return to that story about my friend Sarah and her son Noah and what happened next. So Sarah realized that Noah needed some new practices that would help nurture a fresh movement of the spirit in his life now instead of relying on the old family practices from when he was a toddler. And so the next day she shared about what she thought she might be hearing from God with Noah. She told him that she was so proud of him for asking good questions. She told him that she believed that Jesus actually did speak to him, and together they looked at that verse from the Gospel of John, remain in me and I will remain in you. Sarah told Noah that, that just like some of his old clothes didn't fit him anymore, she wondered if some of the ways that he was interacting with Jesus weren't big enough for the questions that his brain was asking now, and he agreed. So Sarah told Noah that she would have a surprise for him after school. She wanted to give Noah an intentional way to put what he was experiencing from God into practice. So she went shopping. She bought him a journal, a big kid Bible, some art supplies, a daily devotional. She got an old coffee table. She set it up in his room, and she put a plant on there and a real candle so it would feel kind of grown up. And when he got home from school, she brought him into his room and showed him his new special God time space. And she told him again, Noah, I am so proud of you for asking good questions. And I thought these things might help you remain with Jesus as you grow. She let him pick out some worship music. She showed him how to use the devotional. And they sat next to each other quietly. And they each had their own special God time. And they practiced it together for weeks. And she knew that he really looked forward to it, but she started to get curious about what he was experiencing in those times. And so she asked him like as nonchalantly as she could, hey, buddy. So have you thought any more about those questions that you were having about God? And he said, oh, whether or not God is real, I know God is real. God talks to me every day in my special God time. Noah just needed some new practices. And when he started to let the river flow through him in a new season, he unclogged the dam. And he heard from God's spirit in a new way. But here's the thing. One day, Noah might need to shift his practice again. Having a special God time with a big kid Bible and a children's devotional probably won't produce the same kind of fruit in him when he's 70 as when he was seven. But when he became open to God's dynamic river flowing through him, he joined into something moving and alive instead of relying on the old practices that used to sustain him as a kid. And maybe that's what we all need. Maybe some of us are relying on practices from when we were seven or 17 or 47. And it's time for us to size up for a new season so that the river of God can flow through us instead of grow bacteria. But maybe the, the river has turned a corner and our job is just to follow it. Now, there are lots of great approaches to spiritual growth, and maybe you were taught some of them when you were a newer Christian, and lots of them are good and they're helpful and they can produce a lot of good fruit. Pray for, for 45 minutes every day, read a couple chapters in the Bible, journal. But sometimes the things that we are taught in the church feel like a one-size-fits-all approach to the Christian life. 
But here's the thing, something that produces growth in me might not produce the same growth in you. What would grow an orchid would drown a cactus. What would feed a mouse would starve a horse, unless it's like a really tiny horse. <laughs> all, all of these things need light and food and air and water, but in different amounts and in different conditions. And so the key is not to treat everyone exactly the same way in every season. It, it means finding the unique conditions that help you grow. So this week, I want to invite you to ask a few questions of yourself. And I'm going to send these out in an email today. And if you have time and a warm coat, I would encourage you to go out, find a body of water to look at, maybe a river or the ocean, and reflect on how dynamic and moving it is. And then invite the Holy Spirit to guide you as you ask these questions. When you think about a life in Christ, what are you thirsty for? What makes you feel fully alive? What spiritual disciplines, or we could call them spiritual practices, used to help you connect with God that just aren't right now? What is a spiritual discipline or, or practice that you can try now to help you connect with the Spirit now? I heard one pastor describe spiritual practices this way. He said, a, a spiritual discipline is simply an activity you engage in to be made more fully alive by the Spirit of life. A spiritual discipline is simply an activity you engage in to be made more fully alive by the spirit of life. Now, a few notes about spiritual practices. When God invites us to grow, it is always an invitation to new life. If you imagine that you should be doing something to connect with God, or you feel like you should try a spiritual discipline and you dread it, then maybe it's not the time for you to engage in that practice right now. Maybe there will be a season for that. But growth means life, and it's not supposed to be associated with dread. And sometimes what we need for growth changes in different seasons. Our, our relationship with God is, is as dynamic as our relationship with other people. When I was in college, my best friend and I would talk for hours in our dorm room. But now we just squeeze in snippets of conversations when we can go for a walk with her kids in a stroller. Maybe something like that is true in your relationship with God right now. Maybe when you were a student, you had the time and the energy to sit with God for hours on end, and that was awesome. But now you're raising little kids, and your prayers look like short breath prayers throughout the day to sustain you. Or, or maybe serving in a soup kitchen with your kids. And maybe one day when the kids are a little older, or maybe if, if you don't have kids, maybe when your work has slowed down, or you have a little bit more space, you'll have the space to sit and pray for a few hours again in a different season. And remember, you might not feel drenched in every season by water. Sometimes you're just going to get a sprinkle here and there for a while, and that's okay. That's seasons. Stay connected to the water anyway. So sometimes growth looks different in different seasons, and sometimes growth looks different for different personalities. There's a writer named Gary Thomas who wrote a beautiful book called Sacred Pathways, and, and he talks about these different temperaments and different practices for each person that can move us away from this one-size-fits-all approach to the spiritual life. So this afternoon, I'm going to send out a few resources to our mailing list. If you're not on our mailing list, make sure you fill out one of those communication cards and get it to us today so you can get those resources. And when you came in, you should have been handed a, a handout on some of those different temperaments. And just see maybe like what you gravitate towards. I'm going to actually send out an assessment as part of that today uh, that you can take an assessment to see which of those spiritual practices, and, and maybe it's a few of them, you really gravitate towards. And if you look at one right now and you're like, oh, that really feels like me, talk about that during soul food. That would be fun for people to hear kind of how you like to connect with God personally. Uh, so those, those are some th resources that are going to come out today. And I'm also going to send out some resources for parents and guardians that have spiritual practices for kids by age and stage. And those were written by Sarah, uh, my friend Sarah, who I talked about. 
And since we don't want to do a one-size-fits-all approach with kids either, there are a few different types of activities that you can try as a family or you can offer to your kids to help kids jump into the river in fresh ways too. Because friends, when we do this as a community, when we actively listen and engage and learn together, I believe that we will enter deeper and deeper into the living story of God. And the promise is that we will find in the story of God a fresh and flourishing life. So as we close, I'd invite you to, to just close your eyes for a minute. Imagine Jesus looking straight at you. Imagine him noticing those places in your life that feel parched and empty. And now imagine him giving you this invitation. You who are thirsty, come to me and drink. If you believe in me, rivers of living water will flow from within you. Let's pray. God, we, we know that there are so many times that we coast instead of grill. So we pray that you would draw us in, that you would draw us deeper, that you would teach us more about ourselves and who we are, and that in that freedom, we would be open to trying some new ways to connect with you. God, we pray that you would meet us there, that we would experience you there, and that as we remain in you, you would remain in us. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.